Good to have you with us here. Where are we? Okay. We are in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8. We started there last week. We're going to finish that and also chapter 9 tonight. Um, we have um, just very quickly, just for your information and, and for your prayers, if you will, uh, the ladies will be going on their women's retreat uh, this coming Friday, and they'll be gone this weekend. So I encourage you to uh, pray for them, and uh, and if you're going, we pray for you too. Um, and then um, we ask that you would pray for... Um, Sue Webb, I think I mentioned last Wednesday that her husband had passed away. We're going to be having a service uh, on the uh, 16th, which is uh, Saturday after this coming Saturday. So not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, we'll be having uh, a, a memorial service for her husband, Tom, who passed away um, this past week. And uh, she really be encouraged to see a lot of, a lot of us come and be with her. That's Saturday, uh, April 16th, and it's at 10 o'clock. Okay, so please keep, uh, please keep her in prayer. And then I'd like you to pray for Marissa Hernandez's mother, who is in the hospital, and uh, uh, they had some good news, but there's still some problems that she has, her mom, her mom has with her back, and oh, her, mother, her mother's uh, first name escapes me, but just pray for Marissa Hernandez's uh, mom. And uh, they're, they're needing to do some back surgery, but they're having some other problems like the heart problem. But uh, uh, the, the cardiologist wants her heart to be good for the surgery. So uh, please keep uh, Marissa's mom in prayer. All right, Ezekiel chapter 8. God is giving a second vision now to the prophet Ezekiel. The first vision back in chapter 1 was of the glory of God. And that's the theme of the whole book of the book of Ezekiel, which is the glory of God. The importance of the glory of God, not only in the time of the captivity that Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah were dealing with in the children of Judah, but even with the far fulfillment of, of much of what we see happening in Ezekiel, and we're going to see later on in the book of Ezekiel, pointing to the future, things that are still yet to come. But as we came into this particular chapter, chapter 8, that God gave Ezekiel another vision, and the vision had to do was showing him not only the glory of God, which he does at first, and, th and that's an important thing, that God will always show his glory before he begins to reveal a lot of everything else that he wants to show. But he began to show Ezekiel why he was going to judge the children of Judah through the Babylonians. And it was because of idolatry, Certainly the heart of rebellion, the heart of disobedience that led them to this idolatry that was not only taking place 
in the surroundings of the temple, but in the temple itself. And this is what he was showing them. And I'm going to kind of review that as we get into into this uh, rest of this chapter and the next. So, one thing that we didn't touch upon last week, which we're going to deal with today, and that is the mention of the word abominations as often as it is mentioned here in chapter 8. And I think that too often we skip over words like this that need to be focused upon when dealing with why God judges sin the way he does. So let's begin reading in verse 13, where it says, He said also unto me, and I I can't see my thing, so here I am giving you play-by-play stuff. That light was on, I couldn't see. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Which means what we've seen in the first 12 verses where there were some abominations that he'd already mentioned. Now he says, now you're going to see greater abominations. By the way, that's not a good thing, just so you'll know. Verse 14, and Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz, And then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. So you thought it was bad enough before, now it's worse, and you think it's worse now, it's getting worse. I was going to say worser. But, I'm not trying to make light of it, but I mean, you know, if we could say worser, that's what's happening. Verse 16, and he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Now look at where he is, in the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar. By the way, between the porch and the altar was where the priests were supposed to go and, 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 and offer sacrifice and prayer and praise and worship unto God. And behold, the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about five and twenty men, so that's twenty-five men, all priests, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, notice, and their faces toward the east, and they worship the sun toward the east. And then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah? Is it a light thing? As if to say, is it something that just doesn't seem important to the house of Judah? That they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I also deal in fury. In other words, God will be furious and judge in his fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears, 
with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Yet will I not hear them. One of the toughest responsibilities of a pastor teacher is to, is to bring out the full meaning of words that, <clears throat> that pertain <clears throat> excuse me, to the wickedness and the abhorrence of <clears throat> iniquities and transgressions and evil sins committed in complete rebellion and willful disobedience to God. Excuse me. As pastors, we'd like, we'd really like to talk about nicer things. We'd like to encourage more than we'd like to discourage. In fact, we don't want to discourage. But the fact is, we have to teach truth. So to focus on a word such as abomination and seek to bring forth its full meaning is not too often done in the modern church today, especially in areas where people don't want to get into the meat of the Word of God. But let's never think that we in the 21st century church are far more advanced and sophisticated than the children of Israel or, or the early church in dealing with the issue of sin simply because we've progressed societally or culturally and, and, and God's Word means something much different than what it meant in those primitive and ancient days. I think a lot of people think that way. Well, those people were probably really much more crude in the way they did things, so we're much more sophisticated now. We've, we've gone to school and, you know, we've gone to college and university and we have our degrees on our walls and, and whatnot. But the truth of the matter is, sin is sin, isn't it? No matter what generation, no matter what century, no matter what epoch. May I remind you of what the Word of God says concerning God Himself. Because if we were leave it, to leave it up to the liberal theologians today, they would say, well, you know, the, things were a certain way before, but, you know, a lot of that was just uh, a, a lot of uh, legend and whatnot, you know. No, let's look at Malachi 3, verse 6. Because in Malachi 3, verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, I change not. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Of course, the second part pertains to what God is saying to the prophet Malachi, but it's the first part of the verse. For I am the Lord, I change not. God doesn't change. Which means that if God gave a word at the very beginning of creation to man, then his word doesn't change. Because God doesn't change. We can consider what James tells us in James chapter 1 verse 17 where he says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom 
is no variableness. In other words, there's no variation to him. He doesn't change from one way or another. He, he, he is who he is. You know, that's why his name is I am that I am. Neither shadow of turning. So there's nothing about God that he's going to change his way or his word or his law. When we talk about his word, it doesn't change either. As we're told in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand how long? Forever. Now, forever is a long, long time. Forever. Eternally. Going back to the New Testament, for all flesh, it tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 24, borrowing, of course, from Isaiah, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. We've just entered into springtime, and, and a few months ago we were looking at brown grass in our backyard because it had kind of withered. Of course, then we saw the only thing that was green, and that was weeds. And now in springtime, things begin to come alive again. But this is how the Lord uses nature to teach us these lessons. All flesh is as grass. All the glory of man is a flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof, thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. There it is again. <clears throat> the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel it's, is preached unto you. By the good news of Jesus Christ is preached unto you. I said, all that to, I said all of that to say that an abomination then, then, in the past, is an abomination now. An abomination then is an abomination now. We could argue the use of the term abomination as it pertained to the breaking of the dietary laws given to the Jews in the book of Leviticus, primarily because of the vision that was given to Peter in Acts chapter 10, where he saw this sheet that, that God had given him, you know, of, of all of these unclean animals, and, he, and God tells him, go ahead and eat. So, so we could argue that, that particular point, which we're not going to do tonight. But when it comes to certain issues that are clearly covered in both the Old and the New Testament, we need to take serious notice. And one issue would be found in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Because it is very clear, because this has never changed. It says in Leviticus 18, verse 22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. And this is just one example in the chapter dealing with the uh, marital abuses as well as uh, the sexual uh, sins. That in many cases were being borrowed from the nations around the Israelites when they had received the law. So the things that are being broken in Ezekiel hundreds and hundreds of years later found their roots in, in these very things that God had said were an abomination. And in this case, homosexuality is one of them. 
The next verse, verse 23, and we're not going to go there, but in verse 23, and you can look at it while you have it, speaks about bestiality, which is found, as I said, in, that, in, in verse 23, would, would also be included in this judgment, because later on, if you read on, then the sins from verses 22 on down are all considered an abomination. And even if you were going up north of 22. But I mentioned these two items because of their connection to the passage that we're studying right now in chapter 8 of Ezekiel. So let's go back to the usage of the term abomination in this chapter. I want you to notice how often it's used and how it's used. For example, in Ezekiel 8 verse 6, it says, He said, Furthermore uh, unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? In other words, he's showing him in this vision that he's, that he's taking. He's taking Ezekiel in vision all the way to Jerusalem and to the temple. And he says, do you see what they're doing? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here. Great abominations. I'm, I'm going to define abominations in just a moment. But these are great abominations that the house of Israel committed here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. But turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. So then you go to verse 9, and there it is mentioned again. And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations. Not just the great abominations, but the wicked abominations that they do here. Read it together with verse 10, because in verse 10 it says, So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. So they had a room that, that God took Ezekiel to go see of, of, of the wall full of all kinds of bestiality, abominable beasts, and I'll, I'll define that for you as well here in just a moment, or translate to you as well in just a moment. And all the idols of the house of Israel. Now, isn't that a strange statement? The idols of the house of Israel. When they were told from the very beginning, you are to worship no idols because you have only one God and you're not to make any graven images of this God. Do you see the seriousness of this? And why God uses, rather than just say a sin, he calls it an abomination. You go down to verse 13, which is the first verse of our text tonight. And he said also unto me, turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. As I said, these are pretty bad. They've gotten worse, and they've gotten worse than worse. The word is used two more times in this chapter. The word abomination in Hebrew is the word to'eba, to'eba. If you like to write down the transliterations, it's T-O, I would put a dash there just so you can get a feel of the word, T-O-E-B-A-H, to'eba. And it means something that is disgusting, an abhorrence. In other words, something that is to be abhorred, which means something that is to be hated, Something that is not to be wanted or possessed by anyone who is a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Especially pertaining to idolatry. Specifically a solid or concrete idol itself. Those are the abominations. That is what the word abomination means. 
It was used twice, as I read earlier, two phrases, gadol to'eba. Gadol, by the way, is the word glory. I don't know if some of you were paying attention on Sunday when we were running the, uh, the uh, uh, video on, on Israel, uh, the Israel trip for 2017, and they were singing, How Great Is Our God. Gadol Elohai, Gadol, Gadol is glory. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, great. How great. Gadol, great. How great is our God. Gadol Elohai. So, Gadol is great, but in this case, it's not a good thing. Because it's Gadol To'eba, great or greater abominations. Uh, the word uh, Gadol is used for both great and for greater. It's just how little, little things that are put on the, the Hebrew to expand the word to greater. Wicked abominations is the phrase ra, R-A, and then to'eba, ra, to'eba, wicked abominations. That pretty much speaks for itself. The abomination stays the same, something that is, is to be abhorred. Then add to that the word that is given to us there as, as far as abominable beasts. It's one word in the Hebrew. Abominable beasts is the word Shekets, S-H-E-K-E-T-S, uh, transliterated, Shekets. And it comes from the wor- root word Shakas, which means to be filthy and polluted. Filthy. Uh, just think of the worst part of filthy, and that's where you want to go. Not the cleaner part of filthy, but the ugliest and, and dirtiest part of filthy. You got it? That's what that means, Shakas. A filthy, idolatrous object. And, and I say that because much of the idolatry that was done and the worship of idols pertained to certain sexual things. And I'm not going to go into any detail tonight. I'm just not going to draw those pictures in your mind. Just realize that that's what it was then. And unfortunately, that's the way it is in our day and time. And it's even much more prevalent because of the internet, because of all kinds of modern uh, ways of, of looking at things. Uh, you know, this is why the por- pornography in- industry is so uh, rampant and so, uh, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So God is saying now to, to Ezekiel, you think, you, you think what you've seen is bad. It's going to get a lot worse. Ezekiel was first shown an idol at the entrance of the temple. This is just review of what we saw last week. He then saw the elders of Judah in the dark secret room of the court of the temple burning incense and worshiping vile, disgusting images portrayed on the walls. And, and, and this isn't even the worst of it. The worst begins now in verse 13. Notice that it says, whoops, I went a little, little fast on you there. Let me see if I can return. There we go. He said also unto me, turn thee yet again and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. And then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. So it was, as I mentioned last time, the north entrance was the entrance where the sacrifices were brought in uh, to to be sacrificed uh, for the people. And behold, there sat weeping, there at this gate, sat weeping women, weeping for Tammuz. And then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Have you seen this? Turn thee yet again, 
and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. We thought that was the worst of the worst, but there's even worser things. So not only were the elders involved, the priests were involved. The leadership of Israel was involved. But now the women. The women were gathering in the temple area. And they were also doing horrible things. They were worshiping and weeping for Tammuz, a Babylonian deity, a Babylonian god. Now, to understand what this is all about, we have to go all the way back to the time period of just after the flood and look at a man named Nimrod, the book of Genesis, I believe he is introduced in chapter 10. If you go back to uh, this uh, area, uh, this time right before the, uh, right after I'm sure, uh, the flood, and we look at a man named Nimrod who was involved in leading people in the building of a tower to reach up into the heavens, a tower to worship the heavens and any number of deities by, uh, or to worship any number of deities by, and it was called the Tower of Babel. As the story goes, Nimrod, and again, this is part of the, the mythology if you will, but nonetheless, consider that in, in, this, in this particular account of the Babylonian deities, Nimrod married Semiramis, also known as, interestingly enough, the Queen of Heaven. I mentioned the Queen of Heaven last time out of the, uh, the warnings that Jeremiah was giving to the people that God was giving to Jeremiah to give to the people because they were worshiping the queen of heaven. They were baking cakes unto the queen of heaven. And Nimrod and Semiramis had a son and they named him Tammuz. The thing we need to understand is that Semiramis claimed that this child was born to her while she was still a virgin and she was impregnated by a beam of light brought forth by the sun god. That's the story in a nutshell. Now, folks, we, we know one thing about the devil. The devil does everything he can to counterfeit the truth. So keep that in mind. Oh, by the way, Tammuz was born on December 25th. Just thought I'd mention that. Born on December 25th. Now, what the, woman, the women in our text were doing was taking part in the heathen festival of mourning the death of the, of the vegetation god because Tammuz was considered the vegetation god of the Babylonians. But that also meant the reproduction god. You could even say the resurrection God. They were mourning the death of the vegetation God Tammuz, later known in Greek mythology as Adonis. 
As the vegetation god, Tammuz was also considered that god of resurrection. Why? Because in his story, there is birth, death, and rebirth. Birth, death, and rebirth. The women would mourn for Tammuz in the fall as the leaves were dying on the trees and the trees uh, would begin to bud and blossom again. So from fall through the winter all the way to what? Spring. They would then, at that time, begin to have these great feasts at which time they would decorate eggs. They would decorate eggs because the egg was the symbol of perpetuated life. And they would celebrate the resurrection of Tammuz. Are you getting a picture here? Any similarity, by the way, is far from coincidental. Far from coincidental. The Roman church, unfortunately, the Roman church adopted the pagan practice of the worship of Tammuz and the resurrection of Tammuz and incorporated it into the church, calling it Easter. Taking the name from the Greek goddess Astarte and in another culture called Ishtar. Ishtar. Who was supposed to be the consort of Adonis, the Greek equivalent to Tammuz as I already pointed out. It is painfully interesting that the 40 days of Lent observed by the Catholic Church and some other liturgical denominations, because the Catholics aren't the only ones, are the days that they set aside for weeping, fasting, and prayer. So that at the end of that 40-day period, what do you do? You rejoice. Because Tammuz has resurrected. And the cycle begins again. The cycle of life, according to the Babylonians and the Greeks. It would lead right into the celebration of Ishtar, I mean Easter. That's what it was, Easter, or Ishtar, Astarte. Folks, I, I mean, that's not anything you can't find in, in history books, and it's not anything you can't find, it's well annotated. The problem is that was being done by the people whom God had chosen to be His representatives, the representatives of the one true and living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one God over all, the one God that was never to be never to be uh, carved into an image, the one who alone was to be worshipped and alone to be praised. And what did they do? They turned their backs on God. They turned their backs on God. They thought, well, you know what, it makes a little bit of sense, you know, I mean, that, 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 you know, all of a sudden, you know, it does get kind of 
dreary and fall and then there's a winter and then eventually spring comes and wow they have a nice way of 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 noting all of that so that let, let, let's just go in that direction really and then forsake everything that god said i'm the one that created all things i'm the one that has given you life i'm the one that has given you everything that you need for life and godliness they turn their backs on god Go back and look at verse 16 again. And he brought me into the inner court of, of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, the place where they were to serve the Lord, were about 25 men with, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. With their backs toward the temple. And that, that, that has always been, folks, to do that. That has always been a sign. Of disrespect. Years ago, and some of you, I'm not going to say my age, I know some of you, a couple of you are a little older than me, but you know, we're, we're in a, an august group here, but you know, the, the, the fact is, many years ago, we used to have, you know, lessons on etiquette and things. And we were told, our parents would teach us, never turn your back, never sit with your back toward anybody. Always sit facing, you know, put your chair where everybody can see you. Or if, if somehow you just happen to be that way, make sure that you, you let them know. I'm sorry to have my, giving you my back. I don't mean to be giving you my back. It was a very important thing. Nobody cares about that anymore. What we care about is what we see in our little screens, you know, we just kind of, you know, thumbs working. So, so it's, 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 a, it's a sign of disrespect. And their face is toward the east. And they worship the sun toward the east. And then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Have you seen it? And you haven't overlooked it? Like maybe others would overlook this whole thing, but have you seen it? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations what they commit here? Has sin become a light thing for people even in the church? Who maybe take this idea that once I've gotten to be, you know, say the prayer of salvation or, or get into a church or get active in, actively involved in doing one thing or another. I go to church twice a week or I go to church, you know, three times a week. Doesn't matter how many times you go, listen. But it, once you get in, are you saying now, well, sin's a light thing to me? It's never a light thing to God. That's the issue that we have to deal with here. Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and they have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Uh, that's an interesting thing. I'll explain that in a moment. If I can. I don't know if I can. And therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. In a way, God's saying, I've had it with you. The inner court was the place that the priests alone were allowed to serve at the altar of sacrifice. But consider their attitude and their actions. Instead of facing toward the Holy of Holies, 
They turn their backs to the Lord and, and face toward the east and worship the sun god. But now you might be thinking, how in the world, how in the world did they get that far from God? Once again, consider that a major portion of Christendom, and I'm not saying that, you know, everybody that's a, that, that calls himself a Christian is a Christian, of course. Re- realize that. But there, are, there is this religion of, of Chris, Christianity. We call it Christendom. It's what would be considered the visible church or what you see on TV or what you see you know, here and there. But the major portion of Christendom has adopted many of these Easter, Easter religious practices. Many of them. Not to mention those who teach that you can create your own reality. You know, that's part of the Word of Faith movement. Create your own reality. Or those that say, there is a power in the words you speak. Somehow, reincarnation has slipped into the church. You know through what? Yoga. Christian yoga. Boy, there's an oxymoron. Yeah, I guess you'd be a moron if you did it. Spirit guides. And you could go on and on. But I want to bring you to a warning given to us by Jude. It's that little one chapter book right before the book of Revelation at the very end, the next to the last book of the Bible. In Jude, verses 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. In other words, I want to talk to you about the beauty of the, of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. He said, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort, that you, or exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He said, I want to talk to you about some neat stuff about salvation, but I came to the realization that I need to talk to you about contending for the faith. And the word contend there has to do, it's a boxing term. It's a boxing term uh, used, you know, in, in contending for a title or contending for, a, for, a, for a, a, a match victory, you know, contend. What was the, the movie? Was it on the waterfront? I could have been a contender, you know, with a Marlon Brando, I think it was. Could have been a contender. It's a boxing thing, you know. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what this Christian life is as well. More than just thinking about it as, oh, it's a, a neat be, a place to be in love with God and God in love with us. No, we have to contend for the true faith of Jesus Christ. The faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And in verse 4 it says, For there are certain men crept in unawares into the church. That's what he means crept into the church, unawares. Why unaware? I bring this up a lot. They're unaware because they're not discerning of spirits. Not using the gifts of discernment of spirits to know that there's something, you know, there's sometimes if you hear something, you know, your, your, your antennas need to go up. If you are spiritually sensitive, Staying that way in prayer, staying that way in the Word of God, staying that way in good fellowship with one another in the church. For there are certain men who crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. That's God dealing with them. 
turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, license to do whatever they want to do, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, by their actions denying the Lord. Worshiping the sun God to the east wasn't even the worst of it. Verse 17 refers to these priests putting the branch to the nose. Boy, that is an obscure statement. It's hard to find out what it really means. But the term itself has been linked to lewd practices and pagan worship. Lewd practices and pagan worship rites, one, what, one which is so horrible and repugnant and unspeakably vile that, that it's best not even to mention it except to say that it was a very obscene kind of gesture. As obscene as it could be. God would have the last word and respond with fury, not sparing or having pity because the Lord is serious. See, what, what do we hear some people say nowadays from the more liberal side of the church? Well, God is, God is a good God. He loves everybody. Well, yeah, God so loved the world. But what did he do because he loved the world? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What, just to be here, to say nice things, to be sweet, and to say, oh, listen, you live that kind of lifestyle? Okay, that's all right. You come on in. It's okay. Everything's fine. Everything's dandy. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to do what? To die. Because of these sins. Because of our sins. Because of the sins of the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him and what he did and what he came to accomplish on our behalf. That if we believe, we should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through it might be saved. Saved from what? If we didn't have to worry about things, then why would we have to be saved at all? Saved from sin and death. The, the result of, of sin. Was sin, once the cross came, you know, that after all of that, everything was cool and fine? Why did the disciples all have to be martyred for their faith? Why have there been martyrs throughout the life of the church? By the way, martyrdom was the lifeblood of the church and has always been. God is serious. I don't have a lot of time to get to... to um, we're we're going to do it, though, by the way. I'm just letting you know we're going to do the rest of chapter 9. We're going to get into 9. But God is serious about these things. 
You know, I've talked to a lot of pastors, uh, and the one book that seems to always be the last one they want to get to is the book of Ezekiel, because it's a hard book. It's a hard book. It's a great book, but it's a hard one. So notice now in verse 1 of chapter 9, he cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Now it's interesting that the men being spoken of here are actually angels. And we'll see that in just a moment. Verse 2. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north. So they were coming actually from the direction that judgment was going to come, was from the north. And every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of God, the glory of the God of Israel, was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. In other words, now remember that the glory of God had been there in the temple, pointing out to Ezekiel the image of jealousy, right? And then now he says he's gone up from where they were to the threshold of the house of the temple. As if the, the whole picture is, here goes the glory of the Lord. Out the door. Out the door. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which, he had, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, Through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. The ones who are crying over the sin of their own people. The remnant of those who were godly, the remnant of those who were righteous, who loved God, though few in number, and were crying. And so in this passage, Ezekiel hears God crying out, calling now these angels of God, oftentimes called men in Old Testament, who are to bring judgment against the people. The man clothed with linen in verse 2 is considered to be Jesus Christ. This would then be called a Christophany, a, 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 an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, symbolizing God's grace. Never, never forget that God is always a gracious God, even when he has to bring forth judgment. And now the Spirit of God and the glory of God was departing from Israel. No longer in the Holy of Holies, he is now moved to the threshold of the house of God. Soon, soon we'll find him moving to the east gate, and then to the mountain, and then to the Mount of Olives toward the east, and then... Departing completely. 
That is what is called Ichabod, Ichavod, Ichabod. The glory has departed. In this case, the glory is departing. The faithful Jews who opposed the idolatry were sealed by a mark on their foreheads. Interesting, isn't it? God is sealing those who have opposed and cry over the idolatry that's taking place. Seal them with a mark on their forehead so that they would not be killed. Now here's a challenge for us. Here's a challenge. How do we react if some do not follow the Lord? How do we react if some do not follow the Lord? Do we join them? (laughs) I would hope not. Do they influence us, though? Think about that for a moment. Do they influence us? Do we justify them? Do we show indifference or insignificance? You see, these faithful men and women, they sighed and they cried. And this reaction showed what was in their hearts and it kept them from judgment. It kept them from judgment. You know, these verses came to mind earlier today. Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 27. It seems like a long passage, but they're very short verses, like much of the Proverbs are. But in Proverbs 4, verse 20, it begins by saying, My son, attend to my words. Now, now listen, if you need to have something to, to, an anchor to hold on to when we consider the fact that we could be influenced, we could be tempted by so much going on around us, even by people that we consider to be believers, and, and sometimes maybe showing just a whole different side to what we've ever seen, here's what we, ho- we hold on to. My son, attend to my words, incline thine ear unto my sayings. Now, I know that that's Solomon speaking to his own son. But he's doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because Solomon was charged with the responsibility of teaching his son about the Lord, about teaching his son the Word of God. Notice in verse 21, it says, Let them not depart from thine eyes. What? The Word of God. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence. And if there's a key verse here, it's this one. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Keep, the word keep means to guard and to protect your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Everything that we do in this life pertains to the life that God has given us to live until the day of Christ. To be seen as a life that is is lit like a light shining forth with the glory of God. Notice in verse 24, it says, put away from thee a froward, a froward mouth, which means a perverse mouth. And perverse lips, dealing with, put away a a perverse mouth and the perverseness of it, really kind of literally here, put it far from you. Put perverseness far from you. And let thine eyes look right on. And let thine eyelids look straight before thee. How many times are we told, listen, keep your eyes on the Lord and don't be swayed left to right. You know, don't let the winds of, 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 of 
different winds of doctrine or different winds of life push you and move you and, and take you in all kinds of directions. Look straight. Ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Every day consider where are these feet going because wherever they go, they represent God. Or they, either they represent God or they represent whatever is your lust or whatever is your sin, whatever is where you're taking them. So ponder the path of your feet and let all thy ways be established. Let them be established in the word of God. Let them be established in the things of God. Last, lastly, in verse 27, turn not to the right hand or to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. So once you see that it's somewhere it's not supposed to be, get it out. In other words, don't say, well, you know, it's not so bad, but, you know, it's just like, I'm kind of liking it. I mean, it's not too bad here. I mean, you know, no, no, get that out of there. What are you doing? Rich Mullins sang a song one time called, you're not, uh, you're not as strong as you think you are. How true is that? Some of us think we're so strong because we've been told, you know, we've, we've got, we believe the hype. Oh, listen, you're a child of God. You're a, you know, you're, you're a king's kid. You know, you can get anything you want. You can speak things into existence, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, yeah, and you still have to pay your bills. And you still get sick. You still have a runny nose. Got mocos everywhere. But you have to hide them because, you know, you don't want anybody to think that you're weak. And I think that's why he wrote that song. We're not as strong as we think we are. We need to surrender ourselves humbly before God, who is strong enough all the time. Where else in Scripture did God have believers marked? Because he says, mark these with, 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 with this, this inkwell, you know, this ink thing. You know, mark them. By the way, that's the Lord doing it. Think about that. Where, where else in Scripture? How about Exodus 12, verse 13? And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. The houses were marked. The houses were the people that, it, that took that one-year lamb and, and, and took the blood after it was slaughtered so that it would be put on the doorpost and on the lintel and on the basin of the door so that the, so that the Lord would pass over that house. And notice, the blood shall be to you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. What other time do we see that believers are marked? Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on, any, uh, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Seal the servants of our God. And then we consider, as you read on, about the 144,000 that are sealed for the day of God. Sealed. By the way, 
In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed. You are sealed unto the day of redemption. You're sealed by what? The blood of Jesus Christ. You are sealed by the blood of Christ. The mark is on your life. That's a good mark. That's the one you want on your life. And so, the departing glory of God continues as we read on in verse 5 of chapter 9. And to the others he said, In mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young both maids and little children and women. These would be the ones that don't have the mark. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin where? Begin at my sanctuary. That's where you start. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. And he said unto them, Defile the house, and fill the courts with the slain, go ye forth. Remember, defile the house really is that because of dead bodies, they, you know, that was an unclean thing. You know, dead body was unclean. Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain, go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city, that is, the angels. It came to pass while they were slaying them, and I was left. By the way, remember, we are still in the vision that God has given to Ezekiel of what is yet to come. Came to pass while they were slaying them, and I was left that I fell upon my face and cried and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? The Lord's glory began departing in verse 3, as, as we saw. And as we see now, he was still at the threshold of the sanctuary. The executioners began to slay the idolaters, starting with the elders. But consider that historically this would be fulfilled, or was fulfilled. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, let me read this passage to you. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 17, it says, Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, that's the Babylonians, that's Nebuchadnezzar who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, notice where it begins, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the, God, the goodly vessels thereof. This, of course, in that third siege of Jerusalem. Judgment began in the sanctuary. Why? Because they should have known better. They should have known better. They had the truths of God, right? 
They had the Word of God. They had the scrolls. They had the law. They had the Torah. They had the poetical books. They had David's books. They had the Proverbs. They had all these things. They had some of the prophets. And they had the prophets alive. But they refused to obey. And they led the nation down a path of death and destruction, leading it away from God. And all of this coincides with what Peter says to the church. You see, we can't, we can't divide up and say, well, that was Old Testament. Well, wait a minute. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. He says, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Why? Because we know better. Because of what we have in the Word of God. Because of what we've been given, not only in the patriarchs and in the prophets and in the poets, but in the apostles as well. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? If it begins with us to purify our hearts and our lives before God, then what is going to happen to those who do not obey the Word of God? So what was God's answer to the prophet's cry of distress? Because that's what we see there in verse 8. The prophet is crying out in distress for his people. Ah, Lord God! Wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel in the pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? What was the answer? Verses 9 through 11, Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say the Lord has forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. And I, I, touch, I touched upon this last week because this is something we've already read. They were just saying, well, God's forsaken us, so he's already left. So we're going to go and do the things we want to do, worship the way we want to worship. We're going to throw out the baby in the bathwater and everything else. We're going to throw out the Word of God. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to do it the way we want to do it. We're going to interpret it the way we want as much of the church, and, and I'm say, I, I hate to say much of the church is doing today when they do not respect the Word of God as we see it. Verse 10, And as for me also mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. God is serious. It's also telling us another thing. God says there's a time. I've given so much time for you to repent. I've given so much time for you to come back. I've given so much time for you to come back to me. But there's a time limit. 
This is why we hear now as we look for the coming of Christ that we're told no one knows the day or the hour. So you have to be ready. You have to live like you know. You, like you don't know, but you know. You have to live like it could be at any moment that Christ can come. Wouldn't it be great if he came this moment? But for some people, it comes at their, at their appointed hour of death. Will we be ready then if God tarries to come to take us home together? Verse 11, and Behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. Which is kind of, a, kind of an ominous thought that uh, when Christ comes, he's going to come to judge. And when he comes, he comes to judge completely. He's not going to be like those well-meaning kings that, you know, destroyed most of the people that God told them to destroy. But then they didn't destroy all of them, you know. And they started, they took it upon themselves like Saul did. You know, Saul took it upon himself, you know, to do certain things that God told him not to do. Actually, God told him to destroy everything, and he kept some things for himself and got in trouble for it, you see. So the response was similar to that given to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 15, verse 1, and this is the last text we're going to look at before we close tonight. But in Jeremiah 15, verse 1, it says, And said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me. And here's the thing. Moses and Samuel were men who were so powerful, in their intercession for their people. He said, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. In other words, I will not have pity. I've given you all this time where I was ready to give you everything I wanted to give you. But there will come a time when I can't no longer have pity on you. A reminder of the coming judgment. Judging from this and other texts like Noah and the flood, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, it appears to be characteristic of God to deliver true believers before pouring out judgment on the ungodly. In that, I think we should thank the Lord. That the Lord has marked us with blood. The blood of the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. But may I say to you, as we've, re, as we've studied up to this point in the book of Ezekiel, God is serious about sin. And so because he has saved us, let's not take it in, the, in, a, in a haphazard way or a half-hearted way. It's a precious thing that God has given us. So let's Let's humble ourselves. As the scripture says, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. 
and he shall lift you up. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you in due season. Let's humble ourselves. And let's thank God for his rich mercy and his grace. Amen? Praise the Lord. Wow. Nice. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us another day to serve you. Another day to exalt you. To testify of your great love and grace. And I thank you, Father, that you give us grace even when we have to deal with the judgment side of things. But it allows us the opportunity to realize what is real and what is not. What is important and what is not. What is significant and what is not. What is eternal and what is not. And so, Father, I pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that you would bless those who have heard your word. May it stir in our hearts, moment by moment, day by day. But may it also bring us joy, for the joy of the Lord indeed is our strength. And may we rejoice in all that you have given, so that we might be set free from sin and death and and from ourselves. We thank you that we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to the one who, who loved us and gave himself for us. We bless you and praise you for this now. In Jesus' name, amen.